0: Good morning. Welcome to the house of worship this morning. If we could, would like to ask us all to stand to our feet. <clears throat> our God, our Father, we worship you. We praise you, God, that we have the privilege to be In the assembly of your people, thank you that you are the creator of the universe. Thank you that you have created us, each one of us, as an individual that you are specifically interested in. Thank you that you have created us as a group of believers that you are specifically interested in. And you have placed us in a world designed for your glory Thank you for this privilege to look at your word and to learn and to be uh, stimulated and challenged and changed. Thank you for your spirit that takes those facts, those truths, and transforms us in our inner man and takes us to the next glory to be more like you. Oh, God, we give praise to you. You are worthy. We are unworthy of the privilege of praising you. Meet with us today. I pray, God. I pray that you would speak by your Spirit, um, through your Word, through uh, these human minds and and, and frail uh, attempts at communication. God, I pray that um, your your Holy Spirit would come and do that miracle again and communicate with us and meet with us and empower us and, and instill in us those foundations that we need to fulfill your purpose for us on this planet. May my words be that which your spirit can use. Nothing more, nothing less. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I have a rhetorical question for us. I'd like for a few of you to answer it. Have you Enjoyed God this morning. In this service. Any takers on that? Got a few. Have you worshipped this morning? Any takers on that? I got a few more. This morning I'd like to look a little bit at the subject of worship. I think I'll simply title it True Worship. The Paradox. I love paradox. Anyone who's in my discipleship class knows I I love paradox because uh, it gives us the freedom to do what God's Word does and uh, go beyond maybe just natural reasoning and be okay with things that seem conflicting in the normal, natural world. And realize that in spiritual realities, they do come together, they can come together, and uh, give us some <clears throat> more depth. True worship. I believe that uh, most of us have worshipped this morning. Maybe till we're done, we'll see that what we have done is attempt to worship. <clears throat> what we can do in this world is maybe not much more than attempt to worship. Prepare the way uh, for true worship and true realization of worship. Maybe not necessarily in a truer form, but in a deeper, fuller um, <clears throat> form. I think I'll uh, start with the Gospel of John, chapter four. If you turn there with me, Jesus was traveling through Samaria. And came to a well. We don't have the name of this woman that he met there. So we call her the Samaritan woman at the well. He asked for a drink. And uh, she was shocked because she identified him as a Jew that has no dealings with uh, Samaritans. And... um a conversation ensued. She began to sense that this man has special, maybe supernatural knowledge, and so she began to ask some spiritual questions. Thinking that maybe she can um, settle a long standing debate and, and get something right here. <clears throat> so she says Our fathers worshipped in this mountain word, Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 20. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But, but, he's getting to his real heart of the message, the hour cometh and... Now is. Reminds me of Jesus' theme message of all his teachings. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think it goes with it. <clears throat> the, the hour now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The Father seeks those kinds of people, those who will be true worshippers, who will worship in spirit and in truth. The Father seeks those kinds of people to worship Him. <clears throat> he continues. God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him. Him in spirit and in truth. So we see this thing of true worship. It's original with Jesus It's his words, the woman at the well, it's the Maryam. True worship. Jesus himself, by his teaching, I think, gives us a platform today in our generation to uh, reckon with the challenge that much worship is done. That's not true worship. He's contrasting. When you say, uh, we do this many times, uh, true spiritual gifts, uh, counterfeit gifts. We talk about uh, true spirituality. We talk about a true Christian, uh, a, a genuine product even in, in the natural world. Why? Because we realize we are in a world of counterfeits. We're in a world where there's not the real thing. True worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So let's recognize today that there is much what is called worship, as this woman at the well called worship, that is not passing the bar that Jesus held up. It's not passing the goal. It's not meeting the goal. It's not meeting the standard. It's not meeting the purpose for which God put us in the world, for which God intended for us to worship. Let's look at that word purpose a little bit. That's what uh, my my burden this morning uh, for all of us, more than I think anything else. There's many uh, things we can look at as worship, but my burden this morning is look at that thing of purpose. Purpose for our existence and purpose for what is worship. Maybe even that purpose is what makes it true or not true. <clears throat> Someone help me out. I think uh, most of us could say what is um, the... Um, The true purpose of man. God's ultimate purpose for man. Anybody? To glorify God. Okay. There's other ways of phrasing that. Anyone else? And enjoy Him forever. forever. Thank you. Thank you. A purpose of man is to glorify God. Can we separate that from enjoyment? Can we separate that from enjoying forever? Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Now, I have many times taught whole lessons on just... That first verse on just the first three words in the beginning. When you're talking with people that don't know what started the beginning, you need to talk about the beginning and what was before the beginning or what wasn't before the beginning. And here we have it very simple that in the beginning, God. That infers that there was nothing else. In the beginning, there was God, but there was nothing else. So in the beginning, everything else began except God. God already was there. In the beginning, God created the heaven. And the Earth <clears throat> Have you ever enjoyed the heaven and the Earth? In that enjoyment? Have you ever uh, enjoyed it totally by yourself, and were're were complete in that enjoyment by yourself? Let your mind go with me a little bit here. Some people vary. We all vary a lot in our personalities and ways we enjoy things. Some people are much more alone than of quiet solitude, a walk in the meadow, a walk in the woods by yourself, listen to the birds, go out in the field in a, a moonless night and the sky is clear and look at the stars. And by yourself you can worship God the best. But even that isn't alone, is it? If you're going by yourself and you're worshiping God, you're, you're with God. <clears throat> But let's remove that picture a little bit. So you're by yourself. Can you enjoy the creation? Enjoy, for that matter, anything. Can you enjoy it by yourself? Not talking to God. Not thinking about God. Can you enjoy it the best by yourself? I'm thankful for um, David Brenneman's... uh, (sighs) Opening this morning, I think he brought the, uh, the main sermon. I'm bringing the meditation, all right? My goal is to bring the meditation today. So excuse us if we switch the order around, but I was glad for the main sermon. So we have a main sermon. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't intend to teach a lot of deep doctrine. I intend to inspire us a little bit this morning. I think there's a lot of depth and a lot of doctrine in there, but <clears throat> we're going to try to keep it a little bit on the... Uh, this is inspirational meditation, okay? <clears throat> in the beginning, God... Turn to Exodus 20. Let's look at the beginning of the law. The Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. We will notice um, a a subject, a matter, which the Ten Commandments are actually quite preoccupied with. This commandment to glorify God... To enjoy Him actually makes up more of the commandments than anything else. The Ten Commandments, as we have it given here in Mount Sinai, to Moses and the people of Israel there, in the beginning of of the the law is given to the people of Israel. I'm going to just start reading verse 1. God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. God says, your God's a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And shewing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. for The Lord will not hold him guiltless that take, taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou work and do all thy labor. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou nor thy son nor thy daughter thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That's what we call the first part of the Ten Commandments which has to do with our relationship with God. second part has more to do with our relationships one with another and, and um, the harm that we can do one to another when we do not follow these commandments. So, um, <clears throat> let's point out first of all here that in the fourth commandment uh, about the Sabbath day, I believe that the significance of the Sabbath day is simply remembering who is the Creator. It's pointing us right back there to the creation event and uh, how that... Uh, Jesus he created in six days. It says that again here. And on the seventh day he rested. And it's like he set a a monument in in time rather than a physical built monument. But he set a monument of what God did. And every time that we uh, remember the Sabbath day, we are remembering what God did. He created. We are recognizing him as the creator, the ultimate. He is the supreme God. He is the supreme God. I believe that today. We don't do that on Sundays. I believe we do it on Sundays. I believe we do it every day of the week. I don't believe that we do it by not going to our physical labor on Sundays. I don't think that's how we do it. Um, But I think we do it by recognizing that we have now entered into Jesus who is the Sabbath rest. Um, But all of these these first four commandments have to do with worshiping God we are commanded by God Himself to say, you worship me. I am jealous. Children, are you allowed to be jealous in your house? Is jealousy one of those things that we teach is a good thing for you to do? Is uh, Josh Horst allowed to be jealous? Of what his neighbor has? <laughs> there's diff- right and wrong answers to that, right? There's, there's a right way to say yes I know there. <clears throat> Is uh, am I allowed to be jealous of somebody else? Am I allowed to be jealous of the position of another man? Am I allowed to be jealous of God? What happened to Lucifer when he got jealous? Did that work? He got jealous. He was given the highest position of any created being, it seems, in heaven. But he got jealous of the next one higher. That was God himself. So, if none of us that are created are allowed to be jealous of what someone else has, how can God be jealous Doesn't God need to show us, demonstrate to us what is pure, what is holy, what is right, what is not sin? If it's sin for us, how can God be jealous and it's not sin for him? That's a deep question. I'm not going to get close to fully answering that today. But, why? Let's try to answer that question today a little bit. Why would God demand that we worship him? Why would God be so audacious as to demand that we worship him? And to even be bold enough to say, I'm jealous. We would call the fourth grader as being rather, um, obnoxious to state such a thing, even if we can sense it. He won't say it. <clears throat> being jealous. God is, he says very boldly and clearly he's a jealous God and he says, you must worship me. Now we have uh, coming out many, many, countless times, uh, especially through the Psalms. You have David com- you know, telling us to worship God. And uh, for some, that might be hard enough to stomach. But for God himself to say, you must worship me. It's like a good uh, music composer. So if Bach would have written his pieces of music, and he gets up to play his piano, and he says, now when I'm done, you all got to applaud. How would that be? Do you think the crowd would be quite as enthusiastic when he's done? I mean, good job, you know, good composition, good playing the piano, everything. Do you think the crowd would be quite as enthusiastic in their applause if he would have commanded of them, I'm jealous of Beethoven, or, you know, you must worship me. Now, I want a standing ovation more than you give to anyone else. Let's go a little bit different... um, Strain. What if, um, God, you know, He demands we glorify Him. He demands that we worship Him. Um, how can you give glory to God? Does God not have everything? Is God not totally self sufficient? Does He not already possess endless resources? Even endless glories? Can you add to someone's wealth that has all wealth? Can you give glory to God if he already possesses all glory? Even if it were mathematically possible, does he need it? Now, we're doing ourselves a disfavor. Because by that train of thinking, we are relating to God just like you relate laterally to other human beings. And you're beginning to think maybe God is selfish, preoccupied with Himself. That question I don't think I can fully answer this morning either. Is God selfish? But I would like to say, That if indeed you could say, if indeed you could say that God is selfish, um, we'd like to see this morning a bit of how that God knows the best for you. God knows that by you worshipping Him, that is your way of connecting to the infinite. That is your way of connecting to exhaustless Resources. That is your way of true enjoyment. That is your way, that is our only possibility, I would propose, of truly being, um, <clears throat> culminating the enjoyment that we have. Turn with me to Psalms. I uh, think first we'll look at Psalm 22. <clears throat> A psalmist is crying and he feels forsaken. He says he's crying. He tells God he's crying. He tells God, you're not listening to me. In verse 3 he says, But thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Psalmist another place says that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. God is greater than all space both physical, emotional, spiritual, any measurement of space, God is greater. Nothing can contain Him. But God, in your holiness, your perfection, to the extent that nothing can contain you, you inhabit, you live inside of the praise of your people. You live inside of The praise of your people. Have you ever knelt down to pray and say, God, I need you. God, I need you to be with me today. God comes. God lives. God dwells. He stays. His presence is in the praise of His people. God answers that prayer... By telling you, worship me. Worship me. What does worship mean? Very simple definition in the Greek. It simply means to adore. It simply means to adore. Now, I believe you can begin to adore without verbal outward. Uh, communication and expression of what you're adoring. But I don't believe you can culminate that adoration. I don't believe you can take it to its fullest. You can't uh, enjoy or adore that thing that you're adoring without expressing it. It's natural. We do it all the time. Do we not? So you find that new uh, thing in your kitchen that really helps you. Whether it's the KitchenAid or uh, that new appliance that works so much better than the one before. And if you're really enjoying it, you'll tell your friends about it. We do. Some of us are more wordy than others. And some of us maybe quicker than others. But well, we are human beings that we enjoy that thing. And in fact, we'll share it. Share it with your friends. You take it for a day. Try it out. Don't you like it? We enjoy seeing other people enjoy what we enjoy. We point out it's good things. Sunset. You enjoy the sunset. And you will enjoy that enjoyment more. You will, it will be culminated. It will be uh, perfected by telling someone else about it. And in fact, you'll even say, come look. Look at that rainbow. Isn't it beautiful? And all that is part of the process of enjoying it, is it not? It is. God comes. He inhabits the praises of his people. God with us. God being with us is the ultimate of the Christian experience. Is the ultimate of reality. It was the ultimate of all the beauty of the creation of the Garden of Eden. God came. God was there. He walked with them. He fellowshiped with them. They enjoyed Him. He enjoyed them in the Garden of Eden. (coughs) Enjoyment. God has put us on this earth to enjoy Him. If you're truly enjoying Him, you'll be talking about Him. You won't have to put into into your discipline calendar that today I'm going to go and witness. You won't have to put into your discipline schedule that... Uh, okay, on Wednesday night I committed that I'm going to spend my ten minutes in the morning before breakfast and I am going to have my personal quiet time. If you are enjoying God, you are going to naturally do it. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to look forward to it. You're going to anticipate it. <clears throat> Just like a friend that you enjoy spending time with. <clears throat> enjoying God. Flip over to Psalm 100. We could say that this thing of enjoying God is at the... um, It is the lifeblood of the Christian experience. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Picture this. The psalmist is obviously enjoying God. The psalmist is obviously uh, thrilled uh, with this privilege of thinking and meditating and realizing the greatness of God. And so he's making an invitation. And he doesn't limit the invitation. It's for everyone. All ye lands serve the Lord with gladness. endureth for three generations. No, to all generations. Have you ever burst into song and praise because of God's truth? Because there are absolutes, there are principles, because there is right and wrong. Has that ever caused your heart to praise God? You know, we saw that Jesus told a woman at the well that um, true worshippers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. Let's look at that just for a few minutes here. Psalm 96. Back up just a bit. Psalm 96. You will find this theme through much of the Psalms. Yes, the psalmist talks about we should worship God because he is good, just as we read uh he's merciful uh he's kind but right there with that he says his truth endureth to all generations have you ever worshiped god because he's an angry god have you ever worshiped god because he uh he punishes sin sing unto the lord bless his name i'm going to start verse 1 i'm sorry <clears throat> oh sing unto the lord a new song sing unto the lord all the earth sing unto the lord Bless His name, shew forth His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory that is due unto His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Sang that song this morning. Fear before Him all the earth. Worship and fear, not the runaway, don't-want-to-see-you kind of fear, but the absolute respect, the absolute awe, the absolute feeling that makes me feel so small. Not the insignificant uh, dirt kind of small, but because of his greatness, the amazement kind of small, that he would actually pay any attention to me. Fear. Fear before him, all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Put that in your song. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. Because He comes. What's He coming for? This is why we're calling you know, you walk through the woods, you see God's creation, you see God's attributes, and your heart bursts in praise. But does your heart go this direction as it's bursting into praise? This is what it's doing. People be joyful. Trees of the wood rejoice. Because God's coming, and God's coming to judge the earth. God is coming as a judge. This is the theme. I, I dare to venture that the psalmist had a picture of God which was perhaps more New Covenant than most of us tend to be. <clears throat> this is a theme that is not light. This is not flitting. This is not a uh, surface. This is not just uh, something that's an emotional or sensational thing. This is, this is God. I mean, this is the, the, the psalmist praising God because of His judgment, because of His wrath, because of his righteousness. Because God is coming to judge the earth. My heart is bursting with praise. If that seems like an oxymoron to you. If that seems like a paradox to you. Welcome to the kingdom of the paradox. And. Uh, your heart should connect with that. If it doesn't yet. It must. If you are going to experience. The kind of Christian life that God wants us to experience. I would venture that if there is something that makes us Recoil when we bring the aspect of God's judgment and His truth and His righteousness and His right, um, uh, clear right and wrong absolutes, we bring that into the picture of our experience of praise and worship, likely there's something dark. There's something that is not willing to be open to the light in my heart. Likely there's something that that I'm not 100% transparent about, even before God. I don't want to just just be totally exposed and open and truth, um, real with with what is there. <clears throat> but if we are in a position where we, our hearts are totally clear and our heaven is open, <clears throat> we can lay ourselves out before the Lord and rejoice that he is right. Perhaps the psalmist did that many times because the psalmist saw that uh, he was misunderstood, grossly misunderstood. Right now, we're uh, with our family reading through some of the stories of of David, and uh, how that he dealt with the jealousy of the king, and he dodged those javelins, and uh, had to stay in hiding for long periods of time. Very grossly misunderstood uh, by the most important people in his land. But he knew God understood. He rejoiced, because he knew that God judges righteously. Not as, perhaps, some um, corrupt, power-hungry king. We need to rejoice in God's reign. Rejoice that He's in control. Have you ever done that with a particular person? With your president? With your pastor? With your dad? Rejoice that that person is in control of things. Rejoice that that person tells me what to do. Rejoice that that person makes the laws and i got to obey him. Well, if it's a got to, you're probably not rejoicing. But if you can recognize the perfection and the rightness and that he's not making a mistake, which even godly people do at times, but that he's perfect, you'll be able to rejoice that he reigns. Psalm 97, verse 1, The Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about Him. Okay, glad. Bring it together with clouds and darkness. Talk about God being the God of light. Clouds and darkness. Paradox. Two seemingly opposed things that do come together. <clears throat> clouds and darkness are round about Him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of His throne. Dealing out punishment. Punishment. Perfect judgment. This is what's right. And this person is on the left side, and this person's on the right side. This deed is evil. This deed is righteous. That is where God dwells. That's the habitation of his throne. A fire goes before him, burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare His righteousness and all the people see His glory. We're going to come back to that verse. Now in verse 8 we have it again. Because of thy judgments. That's why Zion was glad. Zion heard and was glad. The daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments. Those people there at Harmony, those people there at Oasis, those people there at... Uh, Whatever church you are, they're they're glad over there because God um, punishes wickedness. Is that a good reputation? That's that's what David uh, is marking his his praise all about. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Psalm 98, he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly shewed in the sight of the heathen. This is is the way that evangelism happens. This is the way God expands his kingdom. This is the way God expands his glory for for all the earth and for the heathen to see. God is uh, openly... Showing, in sight of the heathen, his righteousness, his perfection, his uh, inability to to accept anything that is wrong. Verse nine, or verse eight. Let the floods clap their hands. He says, the sea roar, all that are in the world, the hills be joyful. Before the Lord, why? Verse 9, Because He comes to judge the earth. With righteousness shall He judge the world and the people with equity. Challenge us this morning. we think of worship, let's think of truth. Let's think of righteousness. We can bring the thing of spirit. Worshiping God with spirit. Worshiping God in spirit. In the spirit. Which is that part of me that can communicate even perhaps inaudibly, can communicate with another uh, invisible being, being God. God has the Holy Spirit. He's created us with a spirit so that we can communicate. We have a connection. We have an, an ability to connect and, and, and communicate and worship in spirit. Can we bring those together? I do believe there in John chapter 4 that when Jesus told the woman, the woman at the well that those who are true worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, <clears throat> that word truth can take it two different ways. It is used a lot in both ways. One uh, that in reality, in, in, truly, as an adverb. Uh, but it obviously, from David who was a man after God's own heart, the psalmist who had a, had a, a grip on, on New Testament Christianity, it obviously can be used To say we worship him because of his truth, because of his absolutes, because of his perfection, because he will not, he will not, um, put up with anything that is otherwise, anything that does not line up with his standard. I believe that gives much more breadth, much more completion to our worship of God. To enjoy God is to meditate on His attributes. There's a difference between praising someone because of who they are versus praising someone because of what they did. Um, Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at marriage a little bit relationship and marriage I know that some of us can relate to this a little bit closer than others but bear with me for all of us even those who are not married uh, marriage is a very very foundational relationship structure that has majorly affected our lives we see it around us you have parents you see other godly families and you see these things happening so we are going to talk about marriage a little bit um And in marriage, uh, for a man to, to, uh, adore his wife, or a wife to adore her husband, uh, to, to praise, to praise your, your partner, uh, to appreciate. Yes, it happens in practical words of thanks for things that are done. And that's an important part. But if it, only stated that there can be a marriage that is a good marriage, is a fine marriage, there's no fighting there's no anger but there can be a marriage that still feels very very hollow if only appreciation is shared for what, if I only share appreciation for what my spouse does for me thank you for the meal thank you for washing my clothes, thank you for keeping the house and that's it picture that picture that there is no expressed appreciation for who you are express appreciation for the virtues that my spouse has, for her beauty, uh, all forms of beauty, if there's no express appreciation for who the person is. And yes, what we do makes that part of who we are, because if we have virtues of who we are. That's going to affect our choices and what we do, and our selflessness, and our giving, and our serving. But, you understand, the foundation is much deeper than what a person does. And God's acts of what he has done are plenty, are they not? There is—it's already exhaustless. Things you can adore and be amazed at and worship God for what He has done. But we'll look at that a bit more. But oh, realize how much deeper, how much more fulfilling it is for both the one who gives the adoration and the one who receives the adoration. If you focus on who the person is, the virtues. For God, we say the attributes, whether it's his judgment, it's his truth, whether it's his mercy, whether it's his uh, his uh, power as an attribute, which makes the possibility of the creation of all the natural universe. Here, Isaiah saw a picture of what God is. He said, I saw also, the Lord, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, I don't know what, how this happened. I don't know uh, if he physically saw something or it looked like something physical to his physical eyes. And I'm not sure what it all means by the train, but I think we can at least assume that it was something glorious. It was something beautiful. It was something that was glory in the physical uh, a train is, is the extra display, the extra glory, the extra, uh, impressiveness. And so, he gets this picture. He sees something. Maybe God opens his spiritual eyes, and he sees God, he sees God in his throne. He sees that God is high, he sees that he is lifted up, and he sees that the, the splendor Called the train his splendor, it didn't leave any corners empty. It filled the whole house, the whole house where God dwells. Heaven and heavens cannot contain him, yet he dwells within our uh, praises and yet it fills the whole house. The place, the throne is a picture of God's dwelling, God's judgment, God's, God's reign. And his glory, his splendor fills a whole house. And he hears, again, this expression of adoration, this praise going on. The cherubims, holy, 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 perfect, perfect, perfect. No blot. Nothing missing here. The whole earth, not only this room, the whole earth is full of his glory. The post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me. Woe is me. For I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why do I say this? Because mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So it did something for Isaiah. And it will do something for you. That is why. That's the why. Why does God tell us we must worship him? All those first four commandments have to do with giving him the right place, not replacing it with uh, an image, with a thing, uh, with another person, with any other gods, or even... um, not using his name properly, giving proper respect and honor, giving proper respect and honor uh, to his place as the creator. All of those things. So why? Why? We get the privilege of experiencing what Isaiah did. When you worship, you can experience the privilege of seeing who you are. When I compare myself with other people, I can easily feel good about myself. I can easily find enough of people I mean, I many times, on the streets, witnessing, they're constantly talking about how good they are because of someone else that's worse. I can do that. Any of us can do that. The worst criminal in the jail can find someone like that. Someone else is worse. But when we lift up the standard of perfection, and we adore it, and we meditate on it, the small corner, small piece of God's limitlessness... In his perfection and in his splendor and in his greatness in every dimension, when we meditate on it in a small portion, it puts ourselves not in just a different perspective, perspective, but it puts ourselves in the only true, the only correct perspective. And yet God doesn't leave us there. Isaiah said, because of what I saw, I'm undone. Woe to me. I don't have a chance. I don't have a hope. And it's interesting. We're not going to go down this track too much today, but it's interesting that he labeled right away, it's not only who I am as a person, but the group of people that I am identified with. We're unclean. We don't match up to the par, to the standard. And God paid individual attention and met that need. And God still said, I need someone. I need someone. I need someone. He was saying it before. Now Isaiah's in the right place. Seeing that perfection, having God deal with his own problem. And he was in the right place to be able to start hearing it. God saying, who should I send? And he said, send me. So, it wasn't the kind of a picture that you see something, sometimes you see a task, or you see someone else that's an incredible athlete and I'm I'm an aspiring athlete. So that other, you know, Olympia uh you know, Olympic uh, runner that that I don't ever hope to attain to. It can make me feel defeated and it can make me feel so small, you know, if I'd be in a race together with this other world-class Olympic runner and I'm a, you know, just a just an average runner. I probably wouldn't even try. But God's greatness does not affect us that way. Doesn't affect us that way. God's greatness makes us to stand up because at the same time God shows us His measureless interest in me and His value for me and for you. He picks them up and He puts them to work. Gives them a purpose. Gives them a life calling. Gives them significance. Not because he's comparing himself with God and saying, I'm bigger than anybody else. He's not looking at anybody else. He's just in God's presence. God's presence. will also show you the truth of your significance. Paradox? Yes. The truth of your failure to meet the standard. And the truth of your significance at the same time. Other paradox. If I can lay my eyes on it, I'm going to flip back here again to Psalms. Psalm 97, verse 6, The heavens declare His righteousness. All the people see His glory. That can happen very literally. Very literally, there's no place across this globe where the people cannot see God's glory in the heavens. So as we uh, try to bring this together and and think about who God is and His attributes. And, and we could spend a whole sermon talking about each one of God's attributes. One time I sat for um, three weeks and heard a new sermon every day. Deep, expansive, one sermon on one of God's attributes. It was a next, different one the next day. And um, we could do that. But each one of those attributes that we would look at of God... We would have to recognize that it's limitless. There is no measuring it. And one of the things that helps us to have that foundation to know that whatever God is, He's measureless in all those aspects is to look at the heavens. Psalm eight O oh Lord our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Who has set thy glory above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him, for thou hast made him even lower than the angel's. And has crowned him with glory and honor. Wait, paradox. Uh, what what's going on here? How, how is this possible? God, you are so great. When I consider the heavens and the the vast space, the greatness of your power that is shown by that vast space. I just checked this morning. How big is space? How vast is God? You know, I I think it's a right measurement. It's the right measurement for us to measure everything else about God. Everything else that we worship about. And the scientists will tell you, if you ask how big is the universe, ask an astronomer. uh, They will say, we don't have a term like that. Rather, they'll correct you and they say, we can tell you how big is the observable universe. They have to use that term. Because of history. Because of past experience. Every single time they have made a new telescope, they see more than they did before. Every time they can observe more, they see further. Happened again recently. And they are saying now that if they look as far as they can this direction, and they look as far as they can that direction, from point A over there to point B over here is 93 billion. No, not 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 miles. 93 million miles will get you to the sun. 93 billion light years. Traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. That's going around our globe, um, what is that, over a dozen times in one second. Maybe about 20, 15 times or so in one second. Circle the globe that many times. I can't even spin my finger that fast. In one second. And you travel at that speed. It will take you eight minutes to get to the sun. It will take you four miles to get to the nearest star. I mean, I'm sorry, four years to get to the nearest star. If you would take our sun, which is one over a million times larger than our earth, and you would take it as a penny. And I would set that penny right down here on the floor, and those in the back couldn't even see it. If you would reduce our sun down to that size, put it here, you would have to travel 350 miles down to the next state at that scale to find the next star. And by the way, if that penny is there, our little earth, smaller than a pinhead, probably smaller than the smallest dot you can make on your paper, next to that sun. That's our whole earth. And you only got into the next star. Can't begin to measure for you. Can't begin. We recently got a book that tries, I mean, all kinds of different explanations and pictures and tries to put into terms, into human terms and measurements and scaling things down. But God is big. And the awesome thing is that every time they, 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 they are able to make a bigger telescope, get out there further in space with more clear air so they can see further and they use these space observatories and telescopes and every time. They see more. So we can say that it's limitless. And we can only be awed and amazed at God's greatness and and physical space. We can only be awed at God's greatness, his size, by the amount that we know. We know a lot about science compared to many a villager that I've spoken with. And I try, I just begin to try to explain to them, and they're dumbfounded. But the more you know, the more you've built your intellect, the more you know science, the more you have to work with, the more you understand, and the more you can praise God with that understanding. But still, all of us have an immeasurable, small amount of understanding of the physical size of our universe. It's limitless. God knows them all by name. So according to God, it's not limitless. He knows all the stars by name. I describe that to remind us again of God's size. And from the scriptures, I believe it's right to state that God's perfection, his truth, is according to that scale. God's holiness is according to that scale. God's beauty, God's light. Can you measure light? What is absolute light? Is there something like absolute light? I didn't check it. If there is, you know, scientists have measurements for absolute light. Uh, zero, I believe they call it the absolute coldest that they've been able ever, ever able to produce or to 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 measure. Cold is, cold is the absence of heat. All right. Okay. Absolutely no heat. Well, how far we have to get from other stars to say you have absolutely no heat? Right now we have heat because we're we're 93 million miles away from the the, the biggest nearest uh, heat source. <clears throat> um. So cold is the absence of heat. So how many degrees below zero is that? Okay. Okay. All right. So So what is absolute light? You know, God, God is limitless in in everything. He's limitless in his mercy. He's limitless in his value of me as a person. He's limitless in uh <clears throat> what he um Every single attribute. God is limitless. His plan is perfect. So, what does that do for me? God created us in such a way that we are to enjoy Him. And enjoying God puts us in the most perfect place that we can be. And you cannot perfect that enjoyment without expressing it. I know that the very best thing for me is to express that praise to God, alone in my closet, to my family, to those I'm responsible for. Expressing my praise, my enjoyment of God, if I'm truly enjoying God, again, let's make the comparison again. That sunset. You're truly enjoying it. You're enjoying the, you're going up a mountain road and, and you make a bend and all of a sudden there opens up a beautiful mountain valley below you and you just gasp and the other person in the car treats it like it's a tin can beside the road. Does that connect to the, can you connect with that kind of person? There's a disconnect there. There's a problem. Right? Yeah. You're going to have a desire to help that person to see the, the beauty. Open their eyes, you know, describe it, uh, get them to enjoy it with you. And that fulfills something as far as um, you enjoying it. And so it is. We are in a world full of people looking at God's creation like a tin can beside the road. Looking at God's great, great salvation like a tin can beside the road. And our minds and our understanding has been opened to the beauty and the glory and the vastness of God's universe. I'm speaking a bit uh, metaphorically here. There is beauties of God's attributes no one's ever been educated about. They never went to school. They didn't know that this, they thought the stars, you know, our sun is just a few miles out there somewhere. And I've talked with people like this. You get a little bit of education and it's amazing what happens. And uh, so it is spiritually. That's called evangelism. You know, do you understand the spontaneity of that? Do you understand the natural uh, drive of that? That's why the psalmist constantly uses the words, all the earth, all the people, all the peoples. Praise him. Because just like that, enjoyment is perfected by me sharing it with one other person and helping that person to understand and to also enjoy and praise and be in all of the beauty that I am seeing in God's great salvation. That's magnified again when the third person in the back seat sees the beautiful mountain valley too. And it's magnified when we come together and there's a hundred people here and we all see that beauty. And we are enjoying it together. And so, the natural thing for us as of God's people is to have the yearning that every person in the world would be like that. So we started at Genesis. Let's go to Revelations. Does this bring your Christian life together a little bit? Revelations chapter 5, verse 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So now when you see the emphasis on thousands and thousands and... and um, Ten thousand times ten thousand. You understand a little bit where that's coming from now? Do you understand a little bit why that's important to this person who is in all of of God's beauty and glory up in, in perfection and in, in the realms of glory? Yeah. Remember we're Isaiah. God's putting value in us. And our role in that. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders. I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 11. All the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 17. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power. Because you have taken to yourself your great power. And you have reigned. This group of thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands, there's going to be at least some from every kindred Tribe, every language, every dialect, every culture. Multiplying the glory in that kind of diversity. Let's um, take seriously the principle that enjoyment is perfected when expressed. Let's take seriously the principle that when someone else enjoys me, if it's done right, in a God-honoring way, when someone else enjoys me, it does him some good. When I enjoy God, it does me good. My enjoyment of a thing is not perfected until I express it. In marriage... My enjoyment of my wife is not perfected until it's expressed. Now, wives, the tough thing is, there is a lot about what your husband loves about you, which he can't talk to anyone else about. So, it's important for his good that you accept that. Take it a step further. It's important for his good that you revel in that. It's important for his good and for the good of your marriage, and it's important for your good, ultimately, that, that you draw that out of him. And yes, husband, it's important that you express your adoring and your enjoyment of your wife. And I call that the true depth of why we call marriage a um words let me no um, one of the uh, a, a, a uh, practical reality which represents a heavenly a reality uh, ordinance that's why we call marriage an ordinance, right along with the other six ordinances, because that is going into depths which I can' even begin to find human words for in a relationship and an appreciation, and an adoring, and a receiving, and a drawing from one another. A connection, and an adoring, and an appreciation, the expression of all that happens in the total of the marriage relationship. But that again I share, not just to instruct husbands and wives, but for us to realize how that as we are doing that, and as we are reveling in that, and as we are engorging ourselves in that beauty, We are simply giving ourselves a physical case study of a heavenly reality. To the extent we're able to do that with God, we'll experience that beauty and that depth in our marriage. And as we do it in our marriage, it will build and help us and demonstrate for us how to do it with God. May God help us to worship with true worship. May God bless you all.